A lot of times I'll have some cheesy story I start my message with or something to kind of hook our attention. But the great thing about preaching through Exodus is usually that's not even needed. I mean, when you read this story, it reads like a film script sometimes. In fact, they're, uh, they're making a new film with uh, starring Christian Bale, uh, a new Exodus story. So maybe we can go see it as a church. That'd be kind of fun. But we took a week off last week from this narrative and recognized uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And we had uh, Barbara, uh, a guest speaker, come in from the group AVA. Uh, And that was, uh, I I think, a very necessary thing uh, to recognize. uh, Not only the domestic violence happens out there, but it happens statistically uh, in the church. And uh, whether or not it's happening in your home, it's probably happening in someone's home that you know. So uh, again, I want to reiterate that Spinning off of that message from last week, there is on our Facebook page uh, an online course you can take through uh, the AVA website, and uh, it's free, and it just uh, is a way of um, putting that information before us so that we can be more equipped to uh, know how to deal with maybe feelings of anger or uh, abuse in our own lives, or if we are uh, survivors of that, or if there's people in, in your life that you know of that are going through a hard time, it's some resources that you can actually point them in a hopeful direction. So I encourage you to take a look at that. I'll, I'll be uh, reminding us as a church of that throughout the month of October. But back to the text. We are this evening uh, continuing on in our journey through the amazing story of God and his people as it's told in the book of Exodus. And we're only two chapters, not even fully two chapters, into this book. And already one theme is emerging uh, above all the other ones. And that is, um, if there's any theme that's emerging, is that God is faithful even in the midst of impossible odds. God is on the move. He's watching out for his people. He's actively and intimately involved in their lives. He seems to be, in the text, sovereign over this situation that the Israelites are going through. And when we started in chapter 1, we saw Pharaoh being concerned to the point of fear that the Israelites within his borders were multiplying and becoming a numerous and a great people. And so he began these different uh, attempts to suppress them, first through hard labor, then he tries to talk their their midwives into um, secretly and slyly kind of doing away with any males that were born. And his hope in all of this is to to crush the Hebrew male line for two reasons. One is you take the men away, you take the fighting force away, and two is you take the men away and you take their name, their lineage away, and their women would have to start intermarrying with Egyptian people and all of a sudden Israel's just bred out. Finally, Pharaoh uh, keeps meeting resistance. Every time he tries to oppress the people of God, God shows himself more faithful and the people just keep multiplying and multiplying. So Pharaoh tips his hand and openly declares his hatred and his plan to destroy the Israelites by commanding that their firstborn sons be cast into the Nile River. This is the world that Moses was born into, a world that wanted him dead before he was even born. Enter the mighty hand of God. It's a story that's nothing short of miraculous. Moses is found floating in the river by an Egyptian princess. And instead of killing him, like you would assume she would, being a daughter of the Pharaoh who wanted all of these kids dead, she shows compassion on Moses and says she wants to adopt him and bring him into her home. And only this could only happen in God's sovereignty and God's providence 
Who should end up being his wet nurse but his own biological mother? And she gets to nurse him and care for him with, for the standard, probably in the ancient Near East, we think three to four years time nursing. So Moses is about four years old before his Egyptian education would begin and he would return to this Egyptian princess. It's impossible to miss the point of these these stories. God is faithful. He keeps his covenant. And even in the, the face of impossible odds, he will provide. What Pharaoh meant for death would ultimately lead to Israel's future leader being brought up, educated, and trained uh, under his own roof, under Pharaoh's own regime. Moses would get to see the inner workings of Pharaoh's plan and, and, and his system and his military strategy. So the stage is absolutely set now for the exodus from Egypt. And that is where we pick up the story tonight. So I encourage you to stand uh, as we read the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I got to read verse 10 just to kind of set the scene, all right? So the child grew... And she, the princess, brought him, or his mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminating your word and for not only making it uh, living and active for us, but for also softening our hearts and, and opening our minds to what it is you want to say to us. Help me in the task of preaching. Help us in the task of receiving your word. Holy Spirit, may it have your desired effect on us. Amen. You may be seated. In the story world of Exodus 2, we immediately jump from the time Moses is a baby and dipped out of the water to him being a fully grown man. And it, it seems rather odd for modern readers like you and I. In fact, if we read most biographies today, it seems like the authors are actually obsessed with figuring out what kind of childhood this famous person had or that famous historical figure had. Was their dad uh, overbearing? Was their mom an alcoholic? What was it that influenced them to become the person that they became? Great emphasis is placed in modern biographies on childhood and formation so that we can hope to psychologize and figure out what makes people tick. How did this famous leader become this famous leader? There are at least two reasons that this particular story blanks on Moses' childhood. 
First of all, this book is theological. I've said that over and over again. It's theological. That's its intent, not primarily historical. And while it includes history, the history seems to be more interested in showing the work of God in people's lives, not tell us who they took to prom or when they lost their first tooth. Okay? So it's more interested in the theology and what God is doing in people's lives than it's interested in Moses' childhood. Second, ancient biographies as a general rule almost never included accounts of people's childhood. It just wasn't part of that genre of that time period. So think even of Jesus. Out of the four gospel accounts of his life, only Luke gives us a few verses about Jesus' childhood. Those are filled with theological meaning and more than merely telling us what Jesus' favorite food was or whether or not his parents were strict or not. It tells us about this encounter of who who his father really was. But just because there's no record of Moses' childhood doesn't mean we know nothing about Moses' childhood. We actually know quite a bit about what his childhood could have looked like because we have many records, historical documents, of what kind of education an Egyptian boy in this general time period would have had. Now, At first, I don't know about you, but at a general reading, it seems far-fetched that Pharaoh would even allow a Hebrew boy to remain alive in his court. After all, he's the same Pharaoh who wanted them all dead. How does he then allow his daughter, this princess, to adopt Moses? Well, as we looked at last week, or two weeks ago, if this was Ramses II, maybe, maybe not, he had 51 daughters. And a lot of the other Pharaohs had tons of kids, they had harems, and so it could be that... He didn't even realize Moses was a Hebrew kid. Maybe even never met him until he was six, seven, eight years old. But that's kind of weak, and it's an argument from silence. But there is better research that actually it was a common practice for Egyptian pharaohs in that time period to bring foreign boys from lots of different cultures into their home, into their court, and to educate them. In fact, not only was it just common, it was an intentional strategy. When a strong nation like Egypt conquered other lands, they would often uh, leave the chieftains of those lands in place. So let's say Joe and Katie are the king and queen of Egypt, Pharaoh, um, and, so, and they just conquered over here Fraser Land, which is like a really great place, and uh, has, it's a land flowing with milk and, and honey. And, uh, but, but Joe and Katie, they don't want to allocate all these military resources to policing this state over here. I mean, it's like hundreds of miles away. It's very far from their center. So what they do is allow Eric and Emily, the chieftains of that land, to maintain government control. Because Eric and Emily know their people, and if they don't keep them in line, Joe and Katie are going to bring the hammer down. Okay? So that's kind of how it works. So in occupied lands, they would allow the, uh, the indigenous leader to be on their own. But There were three things that this indigenous leader would have to do. First of all, they would have to give a portion of their gross national product, their crops and and, and their cattle and all of those things, all of their trade money, all that tax, once a year, a a gigantic sum would go to the Egyptians, to the the ruling one. The second thing is they were responsible to keep their own people in line, which, as I said before, just frees up military troops. They don't have to be policing this state. And the third thing they would have to do is swear allegiance to Egypt. So in time of war, their troops would become Egypt's troops. Now, 
that seems a little bit dodgy because let's say Fraser Land used to be friends with McAvoy Land, used to be friends with Lawler Land, and Kim over there has got a, just a really tough army too, don't you, Kim? So, you know, here's what happens. They get a little thing going here, a little coup, and they think, hey, all of us together could take out Egypt, right? So that, that was a real fear. So how are we going to avoid that problem? Here's what they do. They take Eric and Emily's prince, their oldest son, and they bring him into their house. And they take McAvoy's oldest son, and they take him into their house. Lawler's oldest son, take him into their house. And if you guys try anything, well, I've got your kid right here. And the other thing is, you're training this, these boys in the Egyptian language, in Egyptian mathematics, in Egyptian religion, all of those things, so that as soon as Eric someday's going to die, and McAvoy's going to you put that child as a vassal king on the throne. You are training your own successors to rule these lands in the Egyptian way. This was common strategy for the Egyptians. Training began for these boys. These are royal boys. These are not just average Egyptian boys. So these are the sons of the, the princes and princesses and any of these uh, sons of, of other leaders bringing in. It began at age four. It was rigorous. Boys in the royal school would learn mathematics, politics, history, and most important to the Egyptians, reading and writing. Egypt so highly prized reading and writing literacy, not because, well, it, it was valuable in every aspect of life, but because they actually kind of had a religious connotation with it. They actually thought that in certain religious documents that the things that they wrote would come to pass, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So this was very important in, in, in the way they write their histories. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we don't have any uh, evidence of Israel ever being in Egypt from an Egyptian point of view. Because the Egyptians would never write about losing a battle. They only write about the battles that they won. Okay, So these boys are going through all of this education Scribal school was not only academically rigorous, it was harsh. One famous Egyptian proverb says, A boy's ear is on his back. He hears when he's beaten. Boys learned Egyptian, and when they mastered that, they also learned Babylonian cuneiform. Since the Babylonians at, at this general period were a rising force, and no longer could Egypt just be this... Uh, ethnocentric land where everyone had to come to them, all of a sudden they're forced to go out to Babylon and other places and open trade routes. Besides academics, future leaders were expected to be proficient in military strategy and tactics. According to Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson, Moses would have had regular doses of competitive running, jumping, swimming, rowing, and wrestling, all designed to develop strength, stamina, and a team spirit. In short, Moses was raised to be a strong, literate, multilingual, educated, military, and political leader on the world scene. So when we dive into verse 11, and we read that Moses saw his brethren oppressed and one of them being beaten, we are, I mean, if we didn't know the story, right, we'd be on the edges of our proverbial seats. Like, we know his education we know God has been with him the whole time to even get him inside Pharaoh's palace. Oh my goodness, could this be? Could this be the moment that Moses was made for? Could this be the moment that God brings his people out of captivity through Egypt? Moses steps in to help his Hebrew brother, kills his Egyptian oppressor, 
After burying him in the sand, he literally thinks he's gotten away with murder. He's ready to lead his people. He, he is a hero in his own mind. And the next day, when he intervenes in this quarrel between two brothers, brothers, don't you know I'm on your side? They reject his leadership. He finds out just how wrong he is about being ready or this being God's timing. They reject his leadership. They question his authority. And worse yet, they know what he's done to that Egyptian. And when he learns that Pharaoh is out to kill him, he runs away to Midian, which is the land of his distant relatives from Abraham's children with Keturah. What Moses thought would have been the exodus of his people became a personal exodus, and maybe more accurately, a personal exile. So what happened? The story was going so well, in my opinion. I thought, oh, he's got all this education, and God got him there, prepped him with all of this amazing Egyptian stuff. How come it didn't work out? Just when it seemed like God was paving the way for the perfect story, Moses' life takes a detour that he could have never imagined would have happened. Ryan, throw up the cartoon real quick. This is an old one that's gone around recently. Uh, actually, the original one says, your plans, the universe's plans. Look at me Photoshop that out. That took me like an hour. I suck at Photoshop, but <laughs> I just put reality. Uh, but isn't that the way it is? Like we have this plan maybe when we're young or maybe when you're planting a church and we think it's just going to go like this and then all of a sudden things happen like your sewer line breaks three hours before your first preview service and you get the flu on your second yeah this happens and it, we we just have this plan you know i'm going to go to university and i'm going to do this i'm going to get married do, 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 do. and it rarely happens that way right the, the reality is the bottom one not the top one there's rarely a direct line from our desired our desires to the end goal, from dream to success. And thanks, Ryan, we can take that down. And when I got to thinking about I mean, just think how shallow and prideful and arrogant, what monsters we would all be if we got everything we wanted as soon as we wanted it, every single time. I was just talking with someone the other day about running start versus traditional university. I was just, I'm already thinking ahead of like, oh, I wonder what would fit my girl's personality and that kind of thing. And th this person is a, um, is someone laughing at me? Oh, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> but th this person is a, is a professor at an undergraduate university. And uh, she said, you know, it really just depends on the kid. Um, she says that rarely, rarely, rarely is an issue of academics. Rarely is it an issue of ability or talent. It's almost always an issue of maturity and personality. And I think many of us would agree that part of the college experience, or, you know, I didn't go to college right away. I went in the Coast Guard, part of the just joining the workforce or maybe joining a trade or, or doing something, a rite of passage almost, or uh, getting your, your hands dirty doing things. Part of that experience is maturing. And becoming a, a more mature person, not just putting stuff in your head, having the right answers to things. In many ways, that process, whether it's university or military or whatever it is, internships, making big mistakes, that's a process. It's a way of humbling us because we commit to a process or we have to work hard to get through something. 
In our culture, sometimes we overly value education of the mind and we undervalue the education of the person. We pump up the value of specialists in this field or that field, but we don't necessarily train people for leadership. We don't train people necessarily to be great human beings. What makes a good leader in our world? If you look at corporate America, and this is a gross generalization, and I'm cherry-picking all the bad points. There you go. But if you go to work in corporate America, you need competence. You need drive. You need talent. You need communication skills. You've got to get all of these talents and points across. You need some kind of vision if you're really going to lead any organization. You need commitment to that vision. You need courage. And most importantly, if you're going to be a leader, you have to have people that will follow. Now, according to that very general criteria that I've cherry-picked out of this guy to prove my point, um, Adolf Hitler was a very good leader. And bin Laden was a very good leader. And the people who run companies that employ children in sweatshops working in substandard conditions are good leaders. And politicians who do just enough right things to get just enough votes are good leaders. My point is, that's been grossly exaggerated, is that competence and even having a following does not necessarily make good leadership from God's perspective. Moses had the intellect to lead. After going through that Egyptian system, my goodness, he had the strength. He even had a good sense of justice, which, as an aside, having very little contact until he was, I mean, after four years old, he's not raised in his Hebrew home. Who gave him that sense of justice? Compassion. I think it was his Egyptian mother who had compassion when she saw him in the river. What a wonderful part of Israel's story who's released into captivity, probably having every reason to want to hate Egypt, to be racist against Egypt. And all of a sudden, their national leader has learned justice and compassion from his Egyptian mother. I'm just saying, that's an aside. So Moses had the ability, the talent, the intellect, all of these these things necessary for leadership in the world. But he was also, he was brash, and he was angry, and he was impulsive, and he was trusting on his own internal sense of right and wrong, relying on his own resources, very formidable resources, but just relying on himself nonetheless. And what he needed to learn, I think, was to trust God. If he was going to lead the people of God, he needed to learn humility. True humility and leadership, at least in God's economy, is dependence on God and obedience to God. Those things go hand in hand. True humility in leadership, in God's economy, is dependence on God and obedience to God. You know, in our church, we talk a lot about vocation as mission. I love that being one of our core values. In fact, next week, we're going to be praying for our students. So if you're a student, that is your vocation right now. We're going to be praying for you. Bring it. Uh, We strive here. We talk about doing good work and quality work all to the glory of God. We want to be, if we're employees, we want to be faithful employees. And if we are employers, we want to be just employers. And if we are independent contractors, we want to be independent contractors with integrity. And if we are stay-at-home parents, we want to be stay-at-home parents who are intentional 
and gracious and compassionate. You know, it, pick a vocation. We want to be good at it to the glory of God. We want to be people functioning in our vocational calling for the good of the world, for the fame of Jesus' name. But if we don't learn true humility, if we don't learn dependence on God and obedience to God, listen, I think we could do more harm than good. Even if you've got work in a good spot, even if you are an educator of the future generation, even if you are daily in a medical field or a counseling field, you are working with precious hearts and souls and bodies, if you are a pastor preaching sermons every week and counseling, if we are doing these things without humility, without dependence on God, we could, we probably are doing more harm than we're doing good. And the sad thing is we may not see it for a long, long time. Moses thought he knew his calling. You know, I don't, this is all conjecture. I'm just putting that out there. I just wonder if Moses might have had dreams of one day leading his people. Uh, it, it's obvious that when he went out to see his brethren, he self-identified as a Hebrew, uh, that he had a sense of justice for them. Uh, I, I wonder what he, what he dreamt about. I wonder, maybe he was playing it safe. Maybe he thought, you know, I'll keep my position of power and prestige and influence in the Egyptian court, but when I can help, I'm going to help, you know, and he looks this way and that way. Maybe he thinks he could, he could help out in little situations like that and still get a good dinner at night in the Egyptian court. Moses thought he knew his calling, but when he acted on his own impulses, rather than trusting God, rather than trusting God's timing, he ended up a murderer rather than a hero, an exile, rather than a leader, at, at least for a time in his life. See, what we're going to see is that Moses learned humility. In the weeks to come, we're going to learn from the text that Moses went from the house of a prince to the home of a pagan priest, from someone who was confident in his own resources to someone who was all of a sudden without a people. Wasn't a Hebrew anymore, didn't have that. Wasn't an Egyptian anymore, didn't have that. He was with the Midianites. He went from a place of prestige to being a shepherd, one of the lowliest positions in the mind of an Egyptian one could have. For 40 years, Moses tended sheep. For 40 years, he learned to earn a living using his hands and forced to be patient with the predictable rhythms of the seasons and the cycles of life, the shearing of sheep, the mating season, birthing, repeat, rainy season, hot season, repeat, travel to this wadi, green grasses over here during June, moves over there in August, repeat for 40 years. He got married. He had a family. He was normal. Probably had fights with his wife. Probably made love to her. He played with his son. He was frustrated at times. He wasn't a better father. Maybe his dream shifted from being a national savior to just owning a nice little plot for himself and one day getting more sheep. But in the crucible of normal, dirty, imperfect, struggle to make ends meet life, Moses became a man that God could use. A man of humility. Moses became a, a man with some tread on his tires, a man who knew what it meant 
to have to wait. A man who had learned the things they can't teach you in Pharaoh's school or university or in an internship. Jeannie read the scripture out of James 4 uh, just a moment ago. And in that chapter, James tells us that God isn't neutral against the proud. He opposes the proud. And, you know, James is talking to Christians there. It's not just those prideful people outside the church. He opposes the proud Christians, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up at due time, in due time. Humble yourself that God would lift you up. You know, some of us are playing uh, for the applause of other people. It's not humble yourself so that people will pat you on the back and lift you up and say, good job, oh, you're so humble. Humble yourself that God may lift you up. You see, while there may not be any shortcuts to maturity in life, there are certainly ways you and I can cooperate with the process. We can actually learn humility along the way rather than having it taught to us the hard way. And I'm all for that, right? Sign me up, Lord. I'd rather, you know, go into it with my eyes open than getting hit over the head all the time with humbling two-by-fours, that kind of thing. The question is, will we learn humility or will we have to be humbled? It is going to happen. And that's a veiled way of saying something actually really positive, that God so cares about you and me that he's not just going to leave us alone. He's not just going to let us spin our arrogant, prideful wheels. He's going to prep us to be in the kingdom of heaven. And that takes a stance of humility. Like Moses, many of us have learned or will learn in the process of learning skills necessary for our calling in life. But have we learned good character? And if we wanted to learn humility, how would we go about that? What are some of these avenues of cooperating with God? Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, comments on this passage. Her observation is that Moses learned humility partly by slowing down. When he had his agenda, his plans taken away, he was forced into solitude and reflection. He sat down, I imagine him plopping down in utter defeat, wondering what's going to happen. He plops down by a well, which in ancient literature, as well in some modern literature, is always metaphorical for introspection, for reflection, among other things. The depth of the well reveals the depth of soul. Now, we don't have to blow up our lives like Moses did. We don't have to be forced into a crisis in order to slow down. It's a decision. We can choose to engage in pathways of maturity, sometimes called spiritual disciplines. Disciplines, not only of engagement, like read your Bible and pray and serve and come to church. You know, I'm saying that kind of jokingly. Those are all good things that we should do, but those are the ones we talk about all the time. But there are other disciplines of disengagement of slowing down. And a couple of them that are married together nicely is silence and solitude. In a busy culture like we have, that is a very difficult thing to do. Silence and solitude go together. The discipline of silence and solitude is the act of pulling away from the phone, from the computer, from conversations, from to-do lists. It's a setting aside of the things that extend our power Make no mistake, this is not just entertainment. The phone, the computer, 
These things can extend our power. Communication, information. I, I get so distracted sometimes when I'm praying or reading the scripture. I'll, I'll, I'll look that up. I'll Google it. And then 10 minutes later, I realize, I realize I've gone down a rabbit trail. And I've looked up some scholar who commented on this. What am I doing? I'm not praying anymore. You know? And, and, I, and I feel in a moment this rush of being able to, to track these rabbit trails. The discipline of silence and solitude is shutting all that stuff off. Better yet, just leave it in the other room. And finding a spot, a time, a space where we can simply be before God. This is not coming with a prayer list. I'm not doing a lot of talking in silence and solitude. It's a time for God to do the work on the inside. This, again, this is not a time of silent prayer, sitting down and visualizing world peace. We're trying to be still enough before God to allow Him to speak to us, to allow Him to do the unseen work that only He can do in our character formation. It's work that, that God can do when we slow down. And the, the results are often so subtle, you will not see fruit the next day, maybe the next week, maybe not for several months. But guess what? You go nine months, sometimes sooner, sometimes longer. But your family, your friends, they'll be the first to notice. Boy, what's up with you? You're so much more patient. There's a gentleness about you. You see, this is how the fruit of the Spirit is often born inside of us. It's a, a genuine sense of humility, not a, a drumming up, not an every decision choosing to be a mask of humility. Again, Ruth Haley Barton writes, Without Moses even being aware of it, solitude begins its good work. And that's the way it is, she writes. Solitude will do its good work whether we know what we're doing or not. For some of us, that drives us nuts. I want to do this. I want to... And some of us, that's such a great gift. Because when you've been beating your head against a wall of maturity and not feeling like you're maturing for very long, year after year... What if someone was to say what I'm saying to you now? What if you opened yourself up to the work of God and tried softer, as John Ortberg said? Try softer. There are areas in our hearts and our thinking that only God can fix and right. And the only way that he gets in is when we're quiet enough and present enough to him to do those things. There's a type of work that God seems to only do in those moments of stillness. And if you don't regularly practice that discipline, I want to encourage you to try it for five minutes. Five minutes of silence and solitude, and you'll be bugging out, reaching for your phone. <laughs> if, you, if it's not a regular discipline for you, it will show you how much you need this discipline. <laughs> Just trust me. Uh, and, and, and don't beat yourself up. Don't say, I'm going to do it for an hour. Uh, that's discipline suicide. Just do five minutes. And then build from there. Try and do it for five days. See what happens. See what newness this happens in your soul. Ultimately, this sermon is not a sermon about spiritual discipline. So I'm not going to go into great detail about techniques and all that. But there's one more I just want to bring up. And it's the discipline of fasting. It often can go with silence and solitude. And let me just throw out that try once in a while to skip a meal. And you skip lunch, let's say, and you're in the middle of your board meeting and your stomach's rumbling and everyone's looking at you and you begin to realize at that moment about 2.30 in the afternoon, dang, I'm hungry, dang, I'm grumpy, and you can do a couple of things. You can cheat and go snack or you can invite God in. Lord, I need your resource. And what 
what you're reminded of is that you need his resource every day. But because you're so competent and trained and educated in those situations, you usually just let your own resources take over. And you make decisions based on your own strength. But sometimes, once in a while, when, when you skip a meal, and you're, re- you're reminded that you're weak without the things of the flesh. You're weak and you need God. You realize, oh my goodness, I need God every day and I've been skipping him. I've been trying to do it on my own. Ask him to help you focus. Ask for perspective. See what happens. Okay, that's enough about the disciplines. We'll do a whole sermon series on that someday. But okay, more importantly, what I am not trying to to communicate is that if you do the right things, you will get on God's good side and you will avoid avoid all of those pitfalls from the bottom of that cartoon. That is not what I'm saying. I'm sorry. That's just not how life works. And I am not saying that if you practice some techniques like fasting and silence and solitude, uh, you will make money and influence your friends. That's not going to happen most likely. What I am not doing right now is giving you a bunch of good advice sandwiched in a Bible story. What I am doing is giving you good news for at least two reasons. First, let me spin it this way. The creator of the universe wants to spend time with you. You are his most precious creation. You and your kind, our kind, right? Okay. I mean, you are special, but we're, we're all special. We're all his children. But he wants to spend time with you and with me. It's not like you have to show up for your meeting with God. Dang, I wanted to go running or play, you know. He wants to spend time with you to pour his life into yours. He wants to bless you. He wants the ones who bear his image to also know his heartbeat and the sound of his voice. He wants to know you and for you to know him. He wants to transform you from the inside out to be an agent of blessing, a representative of God, a citizen that feels at home in the kingdom of heaven. That's what he wants to do. That's good news. And second, the one who calls us to this life of humility doesn't doesn't call us from an ivory tower or a throne of gold. He calls us as one who has already humbled himself first. Jesus never asks us to do something he himself is not willing to do. The writer of the book of Hebrews says something actually kind of strange about Jesus in the fifth chapter. Listen to this. During his earthly ministry, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. That's talking about Jesus. He learned obedience, Jesus, from the things that he suffered. And having become perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now that deserves a whole sermon in itself, which you're not getting tonight. So let me just break this theologically dense passage into a nutshell. Jesus emptied himself of his divine rights. And when he became human, and in a great act of solidarity with you and me, he learned to be obedient in the flesh. He learned to be obedient in the flesh without relying on his other existence. He learned what it was to fear, real fear, 
and still obey. To be tempted, really tempted, not fake tempted, and still obey. To be ridiculed, to feel hurt and rejection, and to still obey. To suffer physically and still obey. And to obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus learned through that experience of obedience and real suffering and real temptation and real fear, just how absolutely lost I am and you are. See, Jesus has actual empathy, actual compassion. Having felt those feelings and knowing he's the only one who could maintain obedience, realizes, oh my goodness, the human race really doesn't have a chance. I knew it. Theoretically, I felt it because I became flesh and dwelt among you. He feels how lost you and I are. He knows how much the world pushes us daily, hourly, away from humility, away from dependence on God, and toward arrogance and self-preservation, towards trust in the things that we can see and taste and touch and feel. He learned how badly we need a savior. And then he willingly gave his life to be that savior. So hear the truth before you hear the good news. We have talents. We have gifts. We're made in God's image. We have abilities. We have good ideas. We have skills. Many have education, whether it's formal or practical. We also have a sin problem. We are unfit in and of ourselves to be true blessings to the world. We do, oftentimes, more harm than good in our own flesh. Now, hear the good news. We have a Savior, a hero. His name is Jesus, and he humbled himself that we might have forgiveness of sin and new life. In this Jesus, we can know the Father. In this Jesus, we can safely humble ourselves, and allow the mighty hand of God to lift us in his good time. Would you pray with me? Lord, when we talk about true humility and when we read stories like you washing the disciples' feet, when we really think about those things, it's, it's as if our, 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 our guts, our bones are crying out in rejection, even if our minds say we want those things. Lord, if what happened to Moses actually happened to us, would we even still have faith? Could we accept a life of quote-unquote mediocrity? Day in and day out routine. Lord, many of us struggle with that idea right now that maybe we're frustrated that our lives are too routine and too boring and too ordinary. We want what is on the TV shows and on the infomercials late at night. Lord, I pray by your grace you would give us a taste for what is true and what is good. And help us to see that actual, genuine, substantial, abundant life 
is only found in you. Lord, help those who are stuck right now on a trajectory, on a path that is killing them through overwork, through just being angry and not content, being perpetually disappointed by false expectations. Lord, would you intervene? Lord, would you intervene uh, for those who are struggling with genuine uh, pride and arrogance and, and, and a dependence on ourselves and, and not, not even giving you a second thought in our places of work or in our homes? God, we pray that you would be the God of every nook of our lives, every aspect of our thinking. And we thank you that that is even an option when we look at our track record and the fact that we deserve death. You have initiated a rescue plan. You, when we weren't even looking while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for constantly bringing these truths to us through your word, through the body of Christ, through the bread and cup which we're about to partake in. Release faith, Holy Spirit. Help us to more fully trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to humble ourselves, that God and only God may lift us up in due time.